This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. In the 1860s or so, a Scottish essayist who I'm very fond of, Alexander Smith, uh, wrote, it is our knowledge that we have to die that makes us human. And a couple of decades later, uh, William James in the 1890s, he called death uh, the worm at the core of the human experience. And then if we fast forward a couple of decades, almost a century after that, in the 1970s, the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death, Uh, in which he basically elaborated on that basic idea. It is our knowledge that we have to die uh, that makes us human. And he did so by uh, trying to frame these ideas in both an evolutionary uh, as well as an existential psychodynamic fashion. And uh, what Becker does, even though this may sound a tad dated given some of the ideas that we've already been exposed to today, uh, is to just start with, I think, the relatively simple Darwinian assumption uh, that people are very similar to all other forms of life and that we're biologically predisposed to survive, uh, both in the interests of self-preservation uh, as well as reproducing and extending our genes over time. On the other hand, Darwin noticed very early on uh, that there's lots of ways uh, over billions of years of evolution that different forms of life have accomplished that most arduous task of persisting over time. So everything from the turtle shells to the eagle's eyesight, and it raises the question of, well, what is it uh, that is responsible for our fantastic success? And the answer is there's lots of things, uh, both physical uh, and psychological, including our relatively large forebrain that gives us the capacity to think abstractly and symbolically To the point, Becker notes that only human beings, as far as we can tell, can imagine something that doesn't yet exist and then have the audacity to take our dreams and render them into reality. Some of you have probably seen a few head shakes. I know it's late in the day. Who's seen uh, da Vinci's drawings of helicopters in the 1500s? And when he did that, people said, wow, uh, that's crazy. And yet today we are routinely transported by what was originally denounced as the doodlings of a madman. And so uh, abstract symbolic thought uh, has certainly served us very well. And I like how Rank, one of Freud's disciples, put it uh, when he said that only human beings make the unreal real. What Becker then does, though, is to move back in time a couple of decades and to think about this idea in light of the Danish existential philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And it was Kierkegaard who pointed out uh, that human beings are so smart that we come to realize that we exist. Uh, Self-awareness, a a complex theory of mind. The way that Kierkegaard put it, it takes a ridiculously sophisticated cognitive apparatus to render yourself the object of your own subjective inquiry. And what Kierkegaard did in a little book called Fear and Trembling that I always recommend you buy for your in-law's coffee table as a holiday gift, uh, what Kierkegaard said... Uh, was that there are emotional ramifications of being explicitly self-aware. And he described them uh, as 
being both awesome and dreadful. Kierkegaard said, you know what? It's really great to be self-aware and to be alive. Who's ever had one of those magic moments? You wake up on a beautiful day like today. Uh, You didn't win a Nobel Prize. You didn't win a great fortune. And yet you're just sublimely appreciative of the fact that you're alive. Everybody does look pretty happy today. I grew up... (laughs) in New Jersey, so it's a little dicier. But I think for the most part, uh, we all understand just the sublime and spontaneous exuberance that comes from being alive and knowing that we're here. On the other hand, Kierkegaard turns right around and he says, yeah, uh, but it's also dreadful to be alive and to know it uh, because lest G be either a small child or neurologically impaired, if you're smart enough to know that you're here, you're also smart enough to know that like all living things, your life is of finite duration. Moreover, you're smart enough to realize uh, that your life could end at any time for reasons that you could never anticipate or control, and, and that from a purely biological perspective, you're a breathing piece of defecating meat that is no more fundamentally significant or enduring than a lizard or a potato. And what Becker argued is that Uh, the explicit awareness of the reality of the human condition. We will all someday die. We can die at any time. We're breathing pieces of meat, cold cuts with attitudes. We're spam with a plan, but we've got no can. Uh, Would uh, literally debilitate us with paralyzing existential terror. And what Becker proposed is that human beings manage the terror that is engendered by the awareness of their mortality uh, by embedding ourselves uh, in what the anthropologists call culture, humanly constructed beliefs about the nature of reality that we share with our fellow human beings that give us a sense that life has meaning and that we have value. And what Becker points out as an anthropologist is that all cultures have uh, stories or accounts of the origin of the universe. All cultures have prescriptions for how we ought to behave while we're here. All cultures offer hope of immortality, either literally through the heavens, souls, and afterlives of the world's great religions, or symbolically through the belief that while you may not be here and I may not be here forever, we're comforted by the prospect that some manifestation of our existence will persist over time, perhaps from having children, perhaps from amassing great fortunes, perhaps uh, from uh, producing great works of art and science. Uh, Moreover, what culture does for us is to give us each social roles with associated standards of conduct that if we meet or exceed them, uh, allow us to think that we're persons of value in a world of meaning. And and when we do think that way about ourselves, Becker called that self-esteem. His argument is that because our beliefs about the world and because self-esteem are so important that whether we're aware of it or not, uh, most of our behavior from day to day is motivated in the service of maintaining those beliefs. All right, two questions. One question is, so what? And the other question is, is any of this true? The the so what question uh, in our world is generally framed in terms of conceptual power. Uh, 
what is it that you could understand if you momentarily accept the veracity of Becker's claims that might be less easy to understand otherwise? And then the second question is, well, is there any evidence in support of these views? What we did, and when I say we, I mean my buddies Jeff Greenberg, now at the University of Arizona, and Tom Pazinski, now at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, um, we developed a very simple laboratory paradigm. It's called the mortality salience paradigm. And and the logic, I think, is disarmingly simple. We just said, all right, uh, if these ideas are correct, if our beliefs about reality serve to mitigate death anxiety, well, well, uh, let's bring people into the lab. And let's remind them that they're going to die. And in control conditions, uh, let's remind them, it's not as gory as it sounds, let's remind them in control conditions of something unpleasant but not fatal. For students, think about your next exam. Uh, For regular people, think about going to the dentist and needing a root canal without anesthesia. Think about being in a car crash and having a limb amputated. All unpleasant, but uh, not particularly fatal. In our typical paradigm, uh, we bury in a bunch of personality scales two open-ended questions. Please briefly describe the emotions that the thought of your own death arouse in you and jot down as specifically as you can what you think will happen to you as you physically die. We do this in a lot of ways, though. Sometimes we go outside the lab and we stop people either in front of a funeral parlor or 100 meters to either side, uh, thinking that when you're in front of a funeral parlor, death may be on your mind, even if you don't know it. And then the most subtle uh, paradigm, we call it subliminal death primes. If you come to my office at Skidmore, uh, you can read your email, and while you're doing that, we'll flash the word death uh, for 28 milliseconds so fast uh, that you don't know that you have been exposed to that rather unwelcome stimulus. All right, so that's what we do. All of these methods produce the same outcomes, and so let's briefly talk about some of the areas of inquiry. Uh, A lot of them, Ajit mentioned earlier uh, in his fine talk. All right, so what do we know based on almost 40 years uh, of research? Our original interest was trying to understand why people can't get along with other people who don't share their beliefs about the nature of reality. And what Ernest Becker said in a book called Escape from Evil uh, is that other people pose an existential challenge to our belief systems because if you accept an alternative concern of reality, uh, you do so by undermining the confidence with which you subscribe to your own. And when you do that, you undermine the beliefs that serve to minimize your anxiety. And what he proposed is that when we run into people who are different, the first thing we do is to denigrate or belittle them. While we do that, we simultaneously try to get them uh, to get rid of their ideas and adopt ours instead. And if that doesn't work, just kill those people, thus proving uh, that my God is better than your God, and we will kick your ass to prove it. Now, in support of that view, uh, what we know in uh, several hundred studies conducted all over the world by our people and independent researchers is, for example, Christians reminded of their mortality. They like fellow Christians a lot more, and they hate Jewish people. Uh, If you go to Israel and remind Jewish people of their mortality, uh, they love Jewish people and they hate Arabs and Christians. Germans reminded of their mortality sit closer to fellow Germans 
And they sit further away from people who look like Turkish immigrants. Iranians, reminded of their mortality, become more supportive of suicide bombers and more willing to become a suicide bomber themselves. In America, as you know, we're very practical. We're not about to blow ourselves up, but we're happy to blow up other people. Uh, When we remind Americans of their mortality, they become more supportive of the preemptive use of biological, nuclear, and chemical weapons against countries who pose no direct threat to us. Uh, Another area of inquiry for us that's not funny. has been understanding uh, how existential anxieties have a radical effect on political preferences. Max Weber, the German sociologist at the beginning of the 20th century, coined the term charismatic leader. He said that in times of historical upheaval, when existential anxieties are apt to be aroused, that we often embrace a certain kind of seemingly larger-than-life leader, who he called charismatic, and he said that very often these are people who believe to be either divinely ordained or self-appointed in order to rid the world of evil. And we got interested in this in the aftermath of September 11, 2001. Old-timers may remember that in a three-week period, President George W. Bush went from the least-liked to the most-liked president in American history. We did a lot of studies leading up to the 2004 election where we showed that Americans preferred Senator John Kerry to President Bush uh, in a benign state of mind. However, when they were reminded of their mortality first, they liked President Bush a whole lot more than Senator Kerry. Ditto in this election this summer, uh, we found in several studies that our respondents preferred Secretary Clinton to now President Trump uh, when they were in a psychologically benign state of mind. However, when they were reminded of their mortality first, their affection and support for the President Trump increased, and they now liked him more than they did Secretary Clinton. Right, let's keep going and let's see how death anxiety uh, fosters an alienation from nature and contempt for the environment. Um, uh, John Locke in the 1890s in the second treatise on government pointed out that anything that's natural is of finite duration. And of course, that's what we chafe at. And that may have been the psychological impetus for the construction of the supernatural. And, and to the extent that that's true, when death is on our mind, we should chafe at the prospect that we're animals and we should be uncomfortable in nature. And that's exactly what we find. People who are reminded of their mortality uh, take issue with claims that humans are animals. Uh, They have more negative attitudes towards animals and think it's okay to kill them for reasons other uh, than food and medical research. People reminded of their mortality become more uncomfortable uh, when they're out in nature. And people reminded of their mortality uh, become more willing to greedily exploit non-renewable natural resources. And, of course, we can't talk about the plundering uh, of the environment without a concurrent consideration uh, of our seemingly insatiable desire uh, for money and stuff. I, I like how Big Daddy and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof put it when he said, The human animal is a beast that dies 
And if he's got money, he buys and buys and buys. And I think the reason he buys everything that he can buy is that in the back of his mind, he has the crazy hope that one of his purchases will be life everlasting. And research shows that Big Daddy's right on the money. People reminded of their mortality uh, say that they have higher fiscal aspirations. And they say it would take more money uh, before they would perceive themselves as wealthy. People reminded of their mortality want more stuff, not just any stuff. They want high-status luxury items like a Lexus and a Rolex. When people are reminded of their mortality and you ask them to draw pictures of money, they draw bigger pictures as if money looms larger when death is on their mind. And just giving people money to count, not to keep, just counting money reduces death anxiety. If you like cookies and you're reminded of death, you eat more cookies. If you smoke cigarettes and you're reminded of death, you smoke more cigarettes. If you drink alcohol and you're reminded of death, uh, you drink uh, more alcohol. Well, uh, so what? Um, Thomas Hardy, one of my favorite novelists, said, if a way to the better there be, it comes from taking a close look at, at the worst. And just to follow up on some of the things that Ajit talked about at the end of his talk, um, I, I would argue uh, that malignant manifestations of death Death anxiety uh, surely do not bring out the best in us. They, they seem to turn us into uh, hateful, warmongering proto-fascists, plundering the planet in our insatiable quest for dollars and dross uh, in a television, alcohol, drug, Facebook, Twitter-induced stupor. And, and, and Danny Brower might be right in, in 2007. Uh, when he said that, wow, uh, an ironic effect of our zeal to deny death uh, may be that we are the first form of life to have the ignominious distinction of being responsible uh, for our extinction. Having said that, though, let me close on a more positive note and just point out, usually I stop now and I'm like, all right, thank you very much. Uh, Let's drink. Uh, On a more positive note, though, human beings, we have a good track record historically of extricating ourselves from some very difficult circumstances once we understand uh, what underlies them. Uh, In the Middle Ages, when people were dropping like flies from the plague, when we thought that was caused by evil spirits, we really didn't get anywhere. Uh, On the other hand, when we realized that it was bacteria, then we were able to develop a a penicillin, and, and that led to modern medicine. Similarly, what I would like to think, even if this appears naively optimistic, is that if we could collectively come to recognize uh, the incredible problems that excessive death denial uh, has produced, then maybe we can also collectively deploy our remarkable creativity and ingenuity in order to nudge our species into a more benign or maybe even more benevolent direction. I like how Camus put it, come to terms with death, Thereafter, anything is possible. Maybe an overstatement, but no harm in using this as a standard to approximate. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.